Hey listener, thank you for joining us for this installment of the Restoration Project's weekly podcast. We are currently studying the book of Ruth. Many people approach this well-known story as a romance between Ruth and Boaz, but it's a bit more than that. A lot more, actually. It's a story of grief and loss, bitterness and resentment. It's a story of including the stranger. It's a story of the radical and costly commitment modeled by some of the book's main characters and God's unending faithfulness even in the midst of tragedy. Ultimately, it's a story of redemption and restoration and hope. There's a lot to consider in this beautiful and ancient work of art. And as we hope to make clear, it points us ahead to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Enjoy the episode. Excellent. I got great news for you guys. Another victory for the kickball team. The non-competitive co-ed kickball team has proven to be victorious again, though in an unconventional way. Today, I believe that the team that we were supposed to face off with heard the rumors about our greatness, and they didn't even want to show up, so they forfeited this morning, but that's a, that's a win for us, and we have solidified our at least 500 season this year. We're now five and three with two games to go. Um, I have made up these fan shirts. There's only like five of them. So we've got two smalls, two mediums, and a large. Uh, And if anyone would like to purchase those, they are $10. I see that hand back there, Cassie. You can come up later and get yourself a shirt. All right, so over the last few weeks, we have been looking at the book of Ruth. Um, I've started a, a bit of a tradition at my home each night when Kate says to our son, she says, Abe, who do you want to take you upstairs tonight? And he says, Dad, which is very nice. But we've started reading uh, the Chronicles of Narnia together, and it's become like story time for us. Now, sometimes he sits in his little chair and listens attentively and follows along, and sometimes he, last night, he decided to get a different book that he was just going to look at while I read, and he wanted me to keep on reading, and I was really getting into it last night. I had voices going. As you know, it's set in London and other magical lands, so I had my accents in full effect, and I was trying to capture his his attention. And over the last few weeks, we have talked about the story of Ruth. And sometimes in my preparation, I think to myself, do we really need to go over the story again and again and again? But here we are. And what we found in the book of Ruth is a story of really um, a woman named Naomi who has traveled with her family from Bethlehem to the east to Moab, which was a massive deal back in this time period for people to leave God's land and go into foreign territory demonstrates the gravity of the situation in which this family found themselves. There was a famine in the land and they had no food. As we'll see tonight, this was the last effort of Elimelech, the patriarch of this family, to lead his folks to a place where they could find Salvation in a very literal sense of the term. Finding bread and food and drink so that they could be sustained. While they were there, however, Naomi watched her husband die and her two sons die. And Naomi was left alone with her two daughters-in-law. 
The Hebrew Bible is, is beautiful in how it, it retells the story, and it really only takes up about three verses in the beginning of chapter one to go over the death of Elimelech and the death of Malon and Kilion, Naomi's two sons. And within that first few verses, there's so much grief and angst that sometimes we forget about. But over the first couple of weeks, we tried to let that grief take over this space for a bit and allow it to room to breathe a bit as we shared some of our own stories and kind of dipped into that 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 culture and that time where Naomi had no options. In the ancient Near East, to be without a husband and to be without a sons was a bad, bad deal for a woman. She had only one option left. She was in Moab and heard through the grapevine, as so often happens, that God had once again blessed the land where she came from. And she decided to go back home and her two daughters-in-law decided to follow her. On the trip, she says, you guys need to go back home. You guys need to find somewhere where you can get married. You need to go back to the house of your mom in Moab because I cannot care for you. Orpah, one of her daughters-in-law, took her up on this and, and went back home. And the Bible has no ill judgment upon her. It just basically says that she turns and she goes back home. She makes the practical decision and we don't hear about her ever again. Ruth, however, says, stop urging me to go back home. Wherever you go, I go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Wherever you die and you are buried, I too will die and be buried. And we've seen Naomi and her countenance in this episode where Ruth just says, no, I will not listen to you. And the text says that Naomi just stopped talking to her. Overcome by grief, perhaps, they go back to Bethlehem and the women of the town begin talking. Is that Naomi? Could it be? She's been gone for 10 years. Look how haggard she looks now. She's got no family with her, just this Moabite woman named Ruth. Naomi, so overcome by grief, perhaps, that she doesn't go out to provide, and Ruth takes it upon herself to go out and to find a field in which she can glean and begin to provide for the family. And a number of events take place where Ruth finds herself in the field of a guy named Boaz, who's a landowner who has lots of property, if you will, and lots of um, potential gleaning spots. He's like the rich man around town. And Ruth finds favor in Boaz's eyes. And not only does Ruth find favor in Boaz's eyes, but Boaz happens to be part of Naomi's family. Now, this is something that as 21st century American readers, we don't really have a strong grasp of what that means. But in this context, the family line was a lifeline. And the fact that Naomi has Boaz somewhere that could potentially marry Ruth inspires her. And in the beginning of chapter three, Naomi kind of wakes up a bit. She, she sheds off some of that grief and begins to plot and scheme and says, listen, Ruth, you need to take a bath. You need to anoint yourself with some good perfume. You need to go find where this man is gonna be at night when he is winnowing his, his uh, barley. And when he has had enough food and enough wine and when he is in good spirits, I want you to go and lay down by his feet and uncover them. Woo! Can you feel it, guys? That is sexy. There's a lot of ambiguity that's going on with that uh, passage, and some people really want to overplay the sexification of Ruth chapter 3, because as we learned last week, the Hebrew term for feet um, can also mean lower legs, and it can also be a stand-in for genitalia. So if you didn't know that, you can just take that home and be blessed by it at some point. Um, 
But Naomi's plot is to get Ruth to go down and put herself in a situation where Boaz will take notice of her, but also potentially to get married. When Boaz is stirred by the coolness of the night, remember his legs to some unknown degree are uncovered, he, he, he wakes up and says, who are you? And Ruth says, I am your servant, Ruth. Take your cloak and cover it over me. Something like that, I butchered it a bit. Basically, take your cloak and cover me. It's like a marriage type term. Ruth is saying, marry me, Boaz. Now in this text, Boaz is apparently very alert and he says, sure. And he begins to spin this plot where he on the next morning will go and take care of business. But he does say that there's one problem with this plot. Whereas he would like to marry Ruth, there's one other person who is closer in line to marrying Ruth and redeeming the land that Naomi has, which we will hear about in just a few seconds. So this is setting up this dramatic ending to the book of Ruth in chapter four. There's actually gonna be two weeks worth of stuff here. We're gonna look at the first half of this, this chapter. But this is where Ruth has gone home and uh, Boaz has loaded her up with all kinds of grain. Uh, some commentators say that she receives anywhere from, I believe it's uh, 15 to 30-ish pounds of grain to maybe even 100 pounds or so of grain. And in this time period, it would potentially be no big deal for a woman just to throw 100 pounds on her back and take it home like a boss, okay? Even though nobody says that anymore. Back then, I bet they did, okay? So this is Ruth chapter four. As Ruth is waiting to hear what Boaz is going to do, this is the conclusion of this story. It says, meanwhile, Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. Just then, the redeemer about whom Boaz had spoken was passing by. He said, sir, come over here and sit down. So he turned aside and sat down. Then he took 10 men from the town's elders and said, sit down here. And they sat down. Boaz said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has returned from the field of Moab, is selling the portion of the field that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought that I should let you know and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you won't redeem it, tell me so that I may know there isn't anyone to redeem it except you, and I'm next in line after you. He replied, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, on the day when you buy the field from Naomi, you also buy Ruth the Moabite, the wife of the dead man, in order to preserve the dead man's name for his inheritance. But the Redeemer replied, then I can't redeem it for myself without risking damage to my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You can have my right of redemption because I'm unable to act as Redeemer. In Israel, in former times, this was the practice regarding redemption and exchange to confirm any such matter. A man would take off his sandal and give it to the other person. This was the process of making a transaction binding in Israel. Then the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, and he took off his sandal. Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I've bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. 
And also Ruth, the Moabite, the wife of Malon, I've bought to be my wife, to preserve the dead man's name for his inheritance so that the name of the dead man might not be cut off from his brothers or from the gate of his hometown. Today, you are my witnesses. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord grant that the woman who is coming into your household be like Rachel and like Leah, both of whom built up the house of Israel. May you be fertile in Ephrathah, and may you preserve a name in Bethlehem. And may your household be like the household of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, through the children that the Lord will give you from this young woman. The word of God for the people of God. Okay, now left to your own devices, I'm guessing that there's a lot of stuff there that's just really weird. There were some bits about sandal exchanges. There was some stuff about uh, buying and selling women, apparently. There was some stuff about land redemption. All the stuff that makes a good devotional in the morning. I know you guys, when you wake up, you're just like, give me some of that land redemption and sandal exchanging because that's how I can be blessed. There's a lot of really weird stuff, and one of the things that we have tried so desperately to do over the almost five years of this church being in existence is taking this really old set of texts and trying to put it in its ancient Near Eastern or its first century Jewish context in order to understand what the heck it is trying to communicate to us today. Now, the bad news for you guys today is this. I think that this is going to be something of a long con Okay, so as, as far as this teaching goes, you're gonna have to track with me for a few minutes so that we can get to the end where there's gonna be some, some good juicy stuff for us. But until then, we're gonna have to muddle our way through sandals and land redemption and other things, okay? So I need you guys to stick with me for a bit. I'm gonna try to help us along, but there's things that demand our attention in this text that perhaps left to our own devices and left to our own reading of the scripture, we might just overlook. And within those details is some important stuff for us to figure out what in the world is going on. For example, the way that this story begins, it says, meanwhile, Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. One scholar puts this into context for us. She says, the town's gateway is equivalent to the later town square, which even still we don't know a whole lot about. It was the locale in the ancient world where people congregated for commerce and other exchanges such as news, and it was where authorized leaders met to conduct legal proceedings and decide on official matters. Back in the day, these folks did not have a courthouse. They did not have sanctioned judges. They did not have some of the things that we have today. For example, if you have to go to the MVA, God bless you. Actually, you know, I just say that because that's what people tell us to say, but I've really had no bad experiences at the MVA. Um, So apologies to anybody that, whatever. We have systems in place where we go, we get the proper paperwork for stuff. Now, I take that back now that I'm thinking about this. They did put me on one like, whole thing where it's like, you don't have the right paperwork, and then I went here and I had to go there and I went all, all these different places. But that's how we did business here and now. But for these guys, you go to the town gate where you can take care of stuff. Now for the real nerds in the room, I've got some pictures, some archaeological pictures to show you as to what this sort of city gate might have looked like. Okay. Now if I can get my laser pointer going, you can see here that this is the, out, uh, the outside structure of the city gate. This is called a casemate wall. 
Okay, so a casemate wall has one uh, wall here made of stone and uh, various stone type things. It's a technical term. You have to be an archaeologist to understand that. Um, but there's some stone type things here, and sometimes you could fill it in with rubble or debris. Other times you could actually make these into like little homes or, or back structures of houses. For example, for the real uh, people that have some experience with this here in, in Joshua, when uh, the spies go to Rahab's house and they put the cord out the window. She's living in the casemate wall, more or less, so that she has access to the outside of the town. Okay, so this is called a casemate wall. And here, this is your main entrance into the city. And you can see here these little, there's like little cutouts. Um, and there's benches that are placed right here where people would congregate to do business. So when Boaz is going out to the gates, he's going out here to a similar type structure where he is anticipating the elders or the people that can make decisions within this town so that he can go about the process of trying to redeem the land and bring Ruth home with him. Okay, so here he's going out to the gates to do this business. And just then, the redeemer about whom Boaz had spoken, he was passing by. And this is really an interesting bit. Boaz says in this translation, which is the common English Bible, there's a lot of different English translations of the Bible. This translation says, sir, come over here and sit down. I think that the um, New International Version says something like, my friend, come over here and sit down. But what's interesting about this, uh, we're going to learn a little Hebrew tonight. This is really a phrase that's pronounced Piloni almoni, or as a good American would say it, Piloni almoni. Everybody just say Piloni almoni. Okay, it's kind of a nonsense phrase to help us understand here that what's really being said is Mr. So and so. Boaz is not giving this person a name, which begs the question why on earth is the narrator wanting Boaz to say, hey, Mr. So and so, get on over here? Because all throughout this book, they know about the names of people, but here what most folks think is that they want this person to be anonymous because he doesn't really play a great role in the story, right? He's the guy that has the opportunity to help out the family, but he decides not to. So in this story, they're taking his identity and they're hiding it, and throughout the text, they're referring to him as Piloni Almoni or Mr. So-and-so, the guy really with no name, even though Boaz certainly knew this guy's name, as did the writer of this book, but here they're, they're hiding it so that we would only refer to him as this pejorative phrase, Mr. So-and-so. This is Boaz's speech, which is massive in this chapter. He says, Naomi, who has returned from the field of Moab, she's selling the portion of the field that belonged to our brother Elimelech. Understand the language there. This is Boaz, who has some sort of relation to Naomi, and he's talking to Mr. So-and-so, saying she's selling the land that belonged to our brother, our deceased brother, that we have a chance to do something about Mr. So-and-so. Naomi is selling this land, which for an, um, an attentive reader, right, when Naomi and Ruth go back to Bethlehem, they're paupers. They've got nothing. What in the world does it mean that Naomi now is selling land? How in the world does Naomi have access to this land? How does she um, have the rights to sell this land? And here, this is where the Hebrew Bible is 
potentially leading us astray in how we're understanding this. Naomi isn't actually selling the land. In fact, no one would sell the land in ancient Israel because they were all understanding that God owned the land. When God says, hey, I'm gonna take you into this place, it's the promised land, it's a land that's flowing with milk and honey, and then they go and they, they take over the land and they get their allotments, they're just borrowing it. In their mindset, which I think is pretty cool, it's God's. It's all God's. And we could pause here just for a moment and think about our stuff. And I don't want to take a rabbit trail here, but we worked hard for it, right? We earned it, right? Darn it, we, we, we should go to Mexico for a week at an all-inclusive place and drink spiced rum out of coconuts, right? Right? I took that example one too far because I would really, okay. Um, <laughs> but like the way that we think about stuff is we've earned it. And there, yes, of course, there is, there's the work that we do that, is, um, that warrants the payment that we receive. But I think sometimes that we forget that everything that we have, as people who are created in the image and likeness of God, everything that we have is ultimately due back to God. But the way that we treat our stuff doesn't always seem like that. And the way that we treat our motivations and our desires, and it doesn't always seem as though God is in the picture. God is the, the afterthought. God is the guy that maybe um, you decide, and this is one of my go-to examples because I think it's so pertinent, maybe you have that picture of the kid from World Vision on your refrigerator and it automatically withdraws that $30 a month. And maybe some months you actually realize that it has gone out. And maybe some months we, we give and we understand it, maybe some months it's just like the cream of the crop that doesn't really even affect us in any way. And that's how we treat what, what we have. And it's like, yeah, God gets, you know, the leftovers. But in ancient Israel, God owns the land. You don't buy it and you don't sell it. You could go back to Leviticus chapter 25, where this is God giving instructions to his people, saying the land must not be permanently sold because the land is mine. You are just immigrants and foreign guests of mine. Ooh, that's a beautiful phrase. You are just immigrants and foreign guests of the good gifts that I have given you. This is set within a passage called the year of Jubilee, when all of the, the debts would reset. Basically, you could not, as a family, get rid of your land forever. It was built into the law code. But there were moments when the stuff hit the fan so dramatically that you would have to sell it or you'd have to loan it or you'd have to get somebody else to take care of it because you had no income and you could not take care of the land that you do have yourself, which may have been what's happening to Elimelech, Naomi's deceased husband. Uh, one scholar says it's not clear what has happened to the land since Elimelech and his family left Judah for Moab some years ago, though we might guess that he had surrendered it as collateral or leased it to someone who had made a loan to him at the time of this famine giving this land away so that now when Naomi and Ruth come back, somebody else is working the land. Somebody else has ownership of the land or the rights to the land. So what Naomi is selling is her rights to then come back and buy it because it's really hers and it's her family's, but she doesn't have what she needs to buy it or to use the produce that comes from the land. So she is now looking to Boaz and other people to stand in for her and to become her redeemer to take on the debts that her family owes and to pay them in full so that she might have some tie back to 
the land. So Naomi's not selling the land to make a profit. Naomi's basically saying, I can't do what I need to do to get back into the place that is really my husband's and really is ours, but I'm just gonna surrender that right and give it to somebody else. So Mr. So-and-so steps up to the plate and says, I'll do it. Two words in the Hebrew. And one scholar says, and you know, for attentive readers, if Ruth had been watching this scene unfold, which we have no evidence for whatsoever, her heart would have been broken or it sunk or it would have melted. And you hear Mr. So-and-so, who's probably not very good looking, I would assure you, maybe, I don't know what, this, what the benchmarks were back then, but still, he's not the guy that she's uncovering his feet and he says, yeah, I'll take over the land. Remember, Ruth hasn't been brought into the equation yet at this point. But yeah, I'll step up and I'll take the land. And we start to see, and I'm going to over-preach this a bit just so, you can, uh, just so you can enter in with me. We start to see Mr. So-and-so. Yes, I'll take the land. Of course I will. I'll redeem it. Because he starts thinking of all of the barley, the beautiful, beautiful barley, which if you had a water tank and some hops, you could turn into luscious, beautiful beer. Kate's back there like, no, no, stop, stop. I know where you're going, stop. But he starts thinking of the profits that he can make from this. See, he might have to pay a little bit into it, but for the most part, there's nobody else that's going to take over this land. It's just going to be Mr. So-and-so's land with all of the stuff, the barley and the wheat and whatever else they wanted to plant in it. He starts thinking like a businessman. And this is where I'm saying I'm over-preaching because we don't see that really in the text, but we do see that him just stepping up to the plate, wakes up first thing in the morning, Boaz shows up and says, hey, Mr. So-and-so, get over here. Do you want to buy this land? Yeah. I mean, that's like pretty much how that transaction goes. You know, sometimes I just have a hard time figuring out what I want to eat for breakfast, let alone if somebody came up to the house and said, hey, do you want to put some money down on a few acres? Yeah, sure. But he starts thinking of what can happen here. And one commentator says, for very little money, just a little bit to redeem the land and keep it in the family, he could carry out a respected family duty and perhaps enhance his civic reputation. Remember, he's not just like in a back alley somewhere. He is with the elders of the town and they present him with this opportunity to step in and to help his family. It's not just the barley, the luscious, beautiful barley. It's also the fact that his reputation can now become Mr. So-and-so. Stepped up to the plate. Poloni Almoni. Okay. You know what I'm saying? No? Yeah, neither do I. Okay. But he begins to think this through. There were no known heirs of Elimelech to reclaim the title uh, to the property later. And the elderly Naomi was certainly unlikely to produce any heirs that would take his profit. All he had to do was put a little money down and then receive all of the benefits and look good in the process. Now, this is where we, I mean, it seems as though Boaz is setting this guy up because he says, hey, do you want to redeem this land? Yes, there's a catch, according to Boaz. And he continues on. He says, on the day when you buy the field from Naomi, you also buy, or maybe a better word there is acquire Ruth, because you don't buy 
wives. Now understand, this is a patriarchal culture that deals with uh, women in a very different way than we do today, but still, this is not a buying and selling sort of text, but you acquire Ruth the Moabite, and this is Boaz being very calculated here. It's not just you acquire Ruth. And I wonder if, now I'm gonna really over-preach it here, when you, on the day when you do this, uh, you're gonna acquire Ruth. She's a Moabite, you know. She's not from here. She's not like us. It's Ruth. She's, the, she's from over there with those people. Ruth, the Moabite. Are we clear on that, Mr. So-and-so? You acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the wife of the dead guy. In order to preserve, when you get Ruth, the Moabite, when you acquire her, your job is to preserve the dead man's name and inheritance. Your job, Mr. So-and-so, is to impregnate Ruth so that she can have a child, a little Moabite-type child, that will preserve the name of her deceased husband. You understand, Mr. So-and-so, and all of the ten elders that I've gathered here and the crowd behind us that is beginning to gather. Are we clear? <laughs> like, so Boaz throws a wrench into this guy's prophets, and he's thinking, sweet, beautiful, barley, Moabite women, sons, inheritance, what? It becomes a very different picture for this person. And the key there is not only Ruth the Moabite, but this, this line that he will now have to preserve the dead man's name for his inheritance. There's a lot of stuff in the ancient Near Eastern culture about how important it is for men to have sons, for men to die and to be buried within the land, and for Naomi to be cast out, and for Ruth to be cast out, and for their potential offspring not to be tied to this land or not even have a chance to be born was a death upon death. Not just for Ruth and Naomi, but for Elimelech and for Malon. This is something that we can't really wrap our, our minds around here, but in this ancient culture, this was a really massive deal that evokes a very strange concept known as leveret marriage, okay? It's gonna get weird for a second here. And we've talked about this a little bit before, but we're going back to Deuteronomy 25 because people, as they begin to see what Boaz is painting, wonder if he is going back to... Um, try to appeal to this leveret marriage and the laws thereof, okay? If brothers live together and one of them dies without having a son, the dead man's wife must not go outside the family and marry a stranger. Instead, her brother-in-law should go to her and take her as his wife. He will then consummate the marriage according to the brother-in-law's duty. The brother-in-law will name the oldest male son that she bears after his dead brother so that his brother's legacy will not be forgotten in Israel. If the brother does not want to marry his sister-in-law, she can go to the elders at the city gate informing them, my brother-in-law refuses to continue his brother's legacy in Israel. He's not willing to perform the brother-in-law's duty with me. Now remember this bit about the sandal? The city's elders will summon him and talk to him about this. If he doesn't budge, insisting, I don't want to marry her, then the sister-in-law will approach him while the elders watch. She will pull the sandal off his foot, spit in his face. Then she will exclaim, that's what's done to any man who won't build up his own brother's family. 
I'm reading in here a bit. Subsequently, the man's family will be known throughout Israel as the house of the removed sandal. If you're trying to tell me that the Bible is boring, you're not reading the fun stuff. Because there's a lot of crazy things going on here. And basically what this passage is, if um, a brother dies, his brother must then impregnate his wife so that the offspring gets some of the inheritance and so that his name can be uh, continued on in this family line. And if the brother does not want to do that, there's this whole bit about the sandal and the spitting in the face and saying, that's what happens to you. The Bible's crazy. Not meant to be applied literally or word for word in this particular context, but we do see some things here and some of the parallels with Ruth, and we're trying to figure out what in the world is Boaz doing in this passage. I have to tell this story just because I think it's hilarious. One time uh, we were down the street, this was like year one, maybe year one and a half, and I'm preaching the story where this actually gets played out in Genesis 38. There's this guy named Judah, and he takes this wife, and he's got three kids. The first one's name is Ur. It's Ur, but every time I read that, I think of my friend who, when he heard that his wife was pregnant for the first time, he went into the shower and just laid there like for half an hour to 45 minutes to an hour, and then came out and said, well, if we're having a kid, that's fine, but I at least want to be able to play airsoft when the kid's born. Airsoft is this game that nerds play where you run around and shoot each other with BB guns. But he was like kind of messed up about this kid coming into the world. And I just think like, what do you want to name the kid? It's the best I got. Anyway, Ur gets married to a girl named Tamar. Ur dies. And then Onan has to fulfill his familial duty. But I'm preaching this story and I'm just reading the Bible. And what happens with Onan is... Looking around the room, I think we're okay. He, now I'm getting nervous because we got to do it all over again. He has sex with Tamar, but then at the last minute, it says that he spills his seed on the ground because he does not want to impregnate her. And then he dies too, right? So now that the dad's got one kid left and he's like, oh, I'm not letting him marry that girl because something's going on with that. So just got to keep him somewhere else. Yes, your face is correct. Like, what, what's happening here? But I remember at that time when I'm talking about Onan spilling his seed, uh, one of our younger Peterson family members gets up and leaves, and I believe before he left, leans over to Susie and says, I think I'm going to go get some water. <laughs> and that was his cue just to, I've heard what I need to hear, and now I'm going, okay? So... In Ruth, the thing that you need to know is this isn't leveret marriage where um, Boaz or this Mr. So-and-so, they don't have this duty that they have to fulfill. Instead, what's happening is Boaz is calling the Redeemer to go above and beyond. He does not have to marry Ruth. He does not even have to redeem the land. But there's like this unspoken moral obligation that because you are part of this family, you should do what is right. And Boaz is calling the Redeemer above and beyond to keep the land in the family, to rescue a foreigner, to provide for her future family, to redeem even at a personal cost. It's not just, oh, the barley. It's this one's going to hurt, but they're our people, and I will step up to the plate and bring them in. And when presented with that opportunity, Mr. So-and-so says, 
I can't. Specifically, Mr. So-and-so says, I can't redeem the land and Ruth for myself without risking damage to my own inheritance. Because you see, when Mr. So-and-so has Ruth and Ruth has a child, then the inheritance gets split, not just with so-and-so's already kids and already family, but then it also includes Ruth's family and Ruth's kids. And whatever so-and-so has, it gets parceled off to these other people that he might not really think are his people. And he walks away. Now, there's no negative judgment against Mr. So-and-so in the text. um, But what we see here is he doesn't step up to the plate in helping his family. But Boaz does. And this is the last bit. This is like the long con getting us to this one moment where now that we understand what is actually taking place and Boaz setting up this this big ask to Mr. So-and-so and him saying, nope, can't do it. Boaz, the fact that he is taking this land, taking Ruth, risking the inheritance that will be parceled off, taking some of his own personal assets and saying, I'm going to invest in this person who, remember, is from Moab. She is not part of the family. She is someone out there, someone who might get like a a side eye because she doesn't look like, talk like, act like any of these other people. Now, I don't want to completely oversell this because earlier it says that the the elders of the city have noticed Ruth, that she is a woman of valor. Eshet Chayil. She is a woman of valor. She has good character about her. But still, Boaz bringing her into the family, risking his own assets for her, someone on the margins and the outskirts, is a beautiful picture of inclusion, a beautiful picture of acceptance, a beautiful picture of potential. Now, when we think about Ruth, we've said that it's a story of grief, it's a story of loss and brokenness, it's a story where people, uh, their lives don't always work out exactly how they are, and um, there's beauty in that process. And as Americans, we need to stop rushing people beyond the grief. It's also a story of commitment, where we have seen Boaz step up to the plate, and we've seen Ruth step up to the plate, and we're beginning to see Naomi kind of put her neck out there for her foreign daughter-in-law as well by saying, Ruth, you need to get prettied up and go find yourself a man because that's what you need to do and I can't help you with that. We're starting to see these images of commitment and we're also seeing unending faithfulness of God to care for his people. Although what's so interesting about this, it's not just Israel. God is caring for the foreigner, the immigrant, the widow, the lowest of the low, according to this ancient Near Eastern contextual people. And for us, I have to see within this story images of the grace that is available to us through Jesus Christ, who becomes a man, who lives in this world and experiences grief and pain and loss, who experiences the hatred of his own people who kill him. And he says things like, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what it is that they're doing. 
He begins to, in a sense, make the path available for reconciliation to happen where he says, even in his last breaths, I still want you. The foreigner, the outcast, the immigrant, the widow. And if you would just trust me, if you would just partner with me, you will experience family like no other. I have prepared a table for you that is filled with people from all different places, socioeconomic statuses from different, um, just the diversity at this place is so beautiful and so haunting. And it's nothing like we imagine for ourselves. But what this story is inviting us to see is that Ruth's acceptance is an image of our own acceptance in this family. And here's the question I'd like to end with. There's two. For some of you, this might be um, your first time hearing this through, and perhaps this is the moment where you begin to say, this sounds like something I want to be a part of. There's no gimmicks. Your life's not gonna make a 180 and everything's gonna be peaches and cream. You're not gonna get a lot of money in your bank account, but what you will begin to receive is family. And for the Christians in the room, what I want you to understand is we, as a part of that, begin to seek out those people and to bring them in in very physical and tangible and literal ways where we don't just let people fend for themselves, but we bring them in and say that as Jesus has loved us, so we will love you. My hope is that for those of us in the room, we will also begin to remember that we used to be out there on the margins and the outskirts. And sometimes I think that we have forgotten that in our complacency of our spiritual lives, but we have forgotten that Jesus has done work so that we can become part of his family and so that we can work with him here and now by being agents of grace and hope and peace and love. And if that relationship that we have with Jesus has not changed us and transformed us and inspired us to love people well, then I think we need to read Ruth a few dozen more times. May we become people like Boaz who look to redeem the other and to bring them in. And may we be Christians who do not forget so quickly that Jesus in his redemption of us has brought us in to the family and offered us forgiveness through his shed blood and his broken body and offered us life through his glorious resurrection. May we be transformed by that here and now. Thanks again for joining us. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to visit us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story is, there's room for you here. And again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. Hope to see you soon.